We have two texts today for our sermon. We could actually have more than that. The first one is found at the end of Matthew 28. Uh, and the other is found in Hebrews chapter 13. I mentioned them last week. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus tells his disciples, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then in Hebrews 13, 5, something that is taken from the Old Testament, a quotation, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We've been looking at the business of community, specifically the practices that build and sustain Christian community. They must be Christian practices, and as we've seen, they are to be rooted in Christian thinking or Christian theology. This is what identifies them as Christian practices, because thus far we've looked at the matter of gratitude and the making and keeping of promises. And one would say, well, those are not specifically Christian activities, and I would agree. But as Christians, we are to do them as Christian practices, and therefore they must be rooted in a Christian theology. As I mentioned before, one writer put it this way, we should pay attention with all the critical tools at our disposal to the crucial difference between telling a story differently and telling a different story. As Christians, we are all different, and we may tell the story differently, but we are to be telling the same story. Our lives and in our living, we are to be telling the Christian story, and this should be what directs our living. Unfortunately, what has happened over time, at least in the last century, is that many of these Christian practices have been separated from their Christian roots, and therefore they simply become sentimental activities. Words that sound nice, that we like, that sort of give us a nice warm, fuzzy feeling, but really have no connection to thinking that is presented in Scripture. What I hope to do in this series is for us to re-examine these practices and reconnect them to their roots. As I said, we've looked at gratitude and the making and keeping of promises. Last week we looked at the business of promises and we noted several things. First of all, we are the people of the promise. As those who are called to be the people of God, we are to follow his example. And in scripture, God is presented as the one who makes and keeps his promises. The biblical story is a long account of God's promises, his covenants, and his faithfulness to them. We see God's promises at work as we read through scripture. I find it striking one of the texts that we used last week was in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in which Paul portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. Let me read it to you, First, or 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. And as we take Jesus to be very serious, then the promises must be, this is what defines God as one who makes and keeps his promises. And in fact, our text, we have Jesus promising his disciples, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then God in the Old Testament, and now being repeated in the New Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The second thing we saw last week was the nature of a promise. That when we make a promise, we voluntarily, voluntarily obligate ourselves to perform some future action. 
which is crucial. In doing so, we are looking ahead to an unpredictable and an unknowable future with the intention of saying, yes, the Lord wills, this is what I will do tomorrow or next month or next year. Please hear this. A promise connects the present with the future. That is what a promise is for. The third thing we saw is that we are people of the covenant. Not only are we people of the promise, but of the covenant. And I mention this because it stands in contrast to saying we are people of the contract. In scripture, we find that promises and covenants are closely connected. But today, I think when we think of promises, we don't think so much of covenant. We think more in terms of contract. And what is the difference? Well, contracts seem to have built into them the possibility of them being broken. And there will be consequences. But the, but the, the notion is that somehow I'll make a, co- a contract, I'll enter into an agreement with you, uh, but in fact there is the possibility that I at some point will want to get out of this contract that I've made. This may work for purchases, but it certainly doesn't work for the life of a community. As we seek to build and sustain a sense of community, I think we should think rather in terms of covenant rather than contract. See, contracts deliberately define the relationship in very narrow terms. I'm the buyer, someone is the seller, and we enter into an agreement. Beyond that, we don't have any relationship, at least not on paper, not in the contract. A covenant, on the other hand, uh, is there for the deepening and the, if you wish, making broader the relationship. It isn't just about one thing. It is about lives that are connected to each other. In many ways, in contracts, once the contract is finished, then all relationships are cut off. The obligation is complete. The exchange is complete. It is finished, so to speak, and you can walk away. I think we could make the case that in the church today, oftentimes we think of our relationship to God in terms of contract rather than covenant. If we ask him for help, if we say, yes, I commit my life to you, then he promises to take us to heaven after we die. And for many people, that's it. Their relationship to God is defined in such narrow terms that that's all there is to it. In many ways, their view is transactional. I did something, now God has to keep his end of the bargain. But covenants are comprehensive. It isn't just about one thing. It is lives that are coming together and being intermingled. In covenantal settings, relationships are extended and deepened. I mentioned marriage last week as an example. That Historically, the Christian practice and the theology of marriage view the, the marriage as a covenant between the couple, the families, the congregation, and God. Now, while it is possible for marriage to be damaged beyond repair, there are clear expectations, in fact, that there will be faithfulness, fidelity, and mutual responsibility. However, in the modern world, when we think in terms of a marriage contract, usually what is discussed in the contract are economic matters. What belongs to which party, and if, in fact, this relationship dissolves, who gets what. Then the fourth thing we looked at last week is that making and keeping promises is countercultural. 
What we find in our world today and in our culture is that there are significant challenges to the practice of making and keeping promises. And I mentioned a few. I'll just go over them quickly. First of all, the idea of keeping your options open. Um, We place a high premium on freedom and being able to make whatever choices you want. Um, And Christine Pohl, who has written about this, says, we cherish the nearly unlimited choices we have about many things and we like to keep our options open. But if you make a promise, if you make a commitment, in a sense you are closing the door to other options. And so people find it very difficult to make a promise because, in fact, they want, well, they're afraid if they make a promise, as soon as they make that promise, something better will show up in their I shouldn't have committed myself because now here is something better. And I think this is true not only of clothing that's on sale, for example, or a house, but even of marriage partners and even of a congregation. People hesitate to commit because something better might show up later on. Also, I think it's hard to make promises because of a distrust of institutions. When we are suspicious of people in authority and leadership, we find it difficult, first of all, to believe them. That whenever they say something, we're like, okay, what are you really saying? You know, what is the translation? What is the subtext of what you're saying? Um, and therefore, um, we come to believe that the promises we make to them aren't really that important because they're not really trustworthy. And so we would never put it this way, but why should we? Why should we be? And one simply has to listen to the news this past week, the whole scandal with the IRS, and people are saying, yes, I knew there was something about those people. And now does that mean that we don't have to keep our obligations, our promises? I I don't think so. Also, one of the things that makes it hard to make promises is the notion of what works for me. We see ourselves as consumers. And so oftentimes when it comes to what is right or what is wrong, that almost becomes secondary. What, is, what drives us is what action will have the best result, what will work, and what's the bottom line. And so in our culture, our ethical thinking has really shifted to what is right and what is wrong and making a promise in that light to what will have the best result. So that oftentimes people will do things that they know are wrong because they believe in the end things will turn out right. Um, I mentioned this last week, I don't have it in my notes, but again, P.D. James comes to mind, uh, the novelist, that in her novels, every person who commits a murder thinks they're doing a good thing. They think they're doing something good. That this person, if this person was allowed to live, there would be disastrous consequences. And so I'm actually doing a good thing by killing this person. No one thinks they're doing something wrong. We would say, well, we have a problem with that. But I think ethically we might go down that same road when it comes to promises. Well, I don't have to keep this promise because if I do, something bad will happen. And so what works for me is what drives people's ethical thinking. We who are people of the promise must understand the call to make and keep promises as those who are made in the image of the Creator and are being remade in the image of His Son. As I ended the sermon last week, I made a comment 
when it comes to the matter of promises, we tend to think that keeping a promise is much more important than making a promise. Well, some have argued, and I think I am persuaded, that as people of the promise, as those who worship and serve the promising God, we should consider the importance of making promises. Think for a moment. If given the choice, what would you prefer, or who would you prefer? Someone who makes a promise, or someone who keeps a promise? Well, I would tend to say that we, we would prefer someone who keeps a promise. In line with that, we read last week Ecclesiastes 5, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So it would seem, at least from the teacher in Ecclesiastes, that keeping a promise or a vow is held at a premium. To the point that if you don't make a promise, you're better than if you do make a promise and you don't keep it. And yet, think about this. We're talking about community. What is at the heart of any relationship is the willingness to make a promise, to make a commitment, to make a vow, in the present with a view to the future. And it is a promise that connects where we are to where we will be in the future. As I was going through this, I thought of marriage and of weddings, a big portion of which are rooted in promises. We call them vows. Sounds more solemn. Recently, Ben and Becca got married, and I had the joy of performing the ceremony. They spoke promises to each other, to those who were in attendance as witnesses, and to the triune God. Those of you who were there heard the following. If you weren't there, now you get to hear sort of a replay. By the way, it's Ben and Becca, but in the wedding it was Benjamin and Rebecca, more formal. Benjamin, will you have this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, and honor her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And then Ben answered, I will. There is the promise. And then later on, I had him repeat after me, I, Benjamin, take you, Rebecca, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part. According to God's holy ordinance, this is my solemn vow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. These are promises that are made in a given moment, but they point to the future. Again, we prefer, though, to think in terms of keeping promises. That is important. I'm not saying it's not important to keep a promise. But consider what one writer has said about this. It is not the failure to keep promises in and of itself that destroys families. Such failure happens in every family and can be expected. That is, it's part of family life. People make promises that they don't always keep. Family can remain family in the midst of unfulfilled promises. What destroys family is the collapse of promise-making. 
It is when the very making of promises is no longer believed or believed in that families die. The failure to keep promises and the collapse of promise making are, of course, related. Yes, you must keep your promise. But you know, to keep a promise, one has to be made. And oftentimes, because we do not make promises, it is because we have no view of the future. There is no sense of the future. I'm making a promise now for tomorrow or the next week or the next month or down the line. We are stuck or left in an eternal present and no sense of past, present, or future. In an eternal present, a community cannot be created and it cannot be sustained. A community needs a past, a present, and it needs a future, and promises are what point to the future. That this is what will sustain us as God's people. I mentioned last week also that there are explicit promises and there are implicit promises. Explicit promises are the ones that we spell out. Implicit promises, we don't say them out loud. They're not spelled out. But expectations are set up by what we have previously done or said. But both kinds of promises are incredibly important for a community. As I mentioned last week, here at the church on Melrose, we tend to favor the implicit over the explicit. Maybe that's just my personality. I don't know. But if we are to build and sustain a sense of community, we need to be aware of the promises that we make to one another and to the congregation as a whole, whether we spell them out or whether they are simply implied. Well, as we did when looking at gratitude, I thought it would be helpful for us to consider what weakens promise-making and keeping and what strengthens it so that we as God's people can try to avoid those things that weaken it and to embrace those things that strengthen our promise-making and keeping. What weakens promising? This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but some things to consider and hopefully provoke your thinking to continue. First of all, betrayal. When we break promises, we betray relationships and erode community. In Dante's Inferno, you can ask Audrey about this as she has read it recently, the ninth and lowest ring of hell is for those who betray what they should be most faithful to. Those who are traitors, those who betray other people, those who do not keep their word, they are at the lowest ring of hell. By the way, that's where Satan is as well. You know, I don't know that any of us here are in favor of betrayal, betraying somebody else. But I don't know that we appreciate how devastating betrayal can be. And I wonder if we all appreciate our own capacity for sin, particularly when it comes to the matter of promises. The Bible is very clear about this. It doesn't shy away from it, I think, in ways that we would. We see this particularly in the passion of Jesus. He was betrayed by Judas. By the way, in Dante's Inferno, Judas is in the ninth ring of, of hell. In his story, as described in Matthew through Acts, we find blood money 
remorse, death, and suicide. All the dramatic elements of treachery and infidelity, all condensed into one short story. But there were other disciples, and in them we find betrayal and abandonment as well. I think we prefer the story of Judas because we don't think we would ever do that. The story of the disciples is a little too close to home. Because in them we find the garden variety of fear, of boasting, of desertion, and denial. As one writer put it, a story that would be almost comic if it weren't so sad. Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper that they would in fact desert him. Peter, in his love and his ignorance, said that he would never do such a thing. Even if everyone else deserted Jesus, Peter would not. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. What Peter failed to realize is that denials don't happen in dramatic settings all the time. Sometimes they're in rather undramatic settings. He did not deny Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin or in front of Pilate. It was, in fact, in front of a group of servants around a fire. Frightened by the unfolding events, Peter lied and betrayed. He did not keep his promise to Jesus. He compounded his lie with oaths and increasingly passionate denials. When the rooster crowed, he realized what he had done and he wept bitterly. It is worth noting that while the Gospels do not all have the same material, all four Gospels provide an account of the disciples' betrayal and abandoning of Jesus. And yet, let's understand that this is part of the story of our redemption. The fact that Jesus had been betrayed did not mean that he had failed. He kept his promises. He kept his commitment. His faithfulness took him to Gethsemane, through betrayal, and to death. So, what weakens promises? Betrayal. A second thing is abandonment, and here we see this in the story of the disciples. Um, I think, however, abandonment for us in this culture is not that big of a deal because we think in consumer terms. So that if we engage in one particular thing and something better comes along, then we simply leave that and go for something better. And we don't see it as abandoning something or someone. We simply see it as going for something that is better. Um, But if that is the way we think, then developing relationships and commitments and a sense of community becomes very, very difficult. Because if, in fact, we find something better, then we don't feel like, oh, I'm turning my back on you or I'm abandoning you. We simply say, I found something better. And the customer is always right. I'm the consumer, and so I've gone for something that is better for me. Well, churches feel this. They feel a sense of abandonment as people leave. And not wanting people to leave, oftentimes there's the temptation um, to make things more attractive in the service, perhaps, so that people will not leave for something that is better. Abandonment 
does not build a sense of community, and it is very harmful to the making and keeping of promises. Before I move on, though, I would be remiss if I did not remind you that though the disciples deserted Jesus, they were restored to their relationship with him. There should be a place for restoration. The third thing that, that does not help, something that weakens making and uh, keeping promises, is making promises that we should not make and trying to keep promises we should not keep. The example that comes to mind is of King Herod. You may be familiar with the story that his, the wife that he took from his brother, her daughter Salome, came out and danced at a big party he was having, and Herod was very pleased with her. Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went back and asked her mom, what should I ask for? And she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Suddenly, Herod got all moral about keeping promises. A man who had unjustly imprisoned John, who had stolen his brother's wife, Suddenly he's this paragon of this, you know, I am a virtuous man, I will keep my promises. I'm reminded of the story that's told of a girl in Sunday school when they were discussing this, uh, that this was the Bible lesson for a given Sunday, and talking about how terrible this was, and she said, well, he was, he was so silly, he was so foolish. He should have told her, I'm sorry, John's head is in the other half of my kingdom. I promised you half the kingdom, okay, but John's in the other half, okay. But suddenly people get very moralistic about keeping promises when in fact that's a promise they probably should not have made and one they should not keep. And I want to be very careful here. When we follow through on a promise that we should have never made, we do not convert it into something good. If it's a promise we should not have made, keeping it doesn't make it good. The emphasis on keeping promises should not be used as a way of making immoral acts seem not only morally acceptable, but morally obligatory. Herod's like, I, I, I've got to give her, I, I made a promise. I've got to keep the promise. It's a promise he should have never made. The fourth thing that weakens promises is misplaced loyalty. Promise keeping is deformed when we are faithful to the wrong persons or the wrong things. Unless our fidelity is located in the larger context of fidelity to God, our loves and loyalties will not be rightly ordered. This is particularly true for a community, and I would say for a church, for a congregation. One author has argued, and has written quite a bit about community, that both friends and enemies are a danger to the community. Well, friends we understand, but I mean, the enemies we can, they're outside, but friends, because oftentimes, even within the context of a community, a specific group will sort of break away and they become friends within themselves. There needs to be a sense of loyalty to the congregation, to the community as a whole. And again, I want to be very careful here. Loyalty, fidelity, and promises are to be to the community and are to go beyond our faithfulness to one person, even if that one person is the pastor. 
I trust that by God's grace, what makes us the church on Melrose is our commitment to each other and not simply that you are all committed to me. And that would make me feel wonderful, but that's not what builds community. We need each other. And we need to be committed and faithful to each other. The last thing I'll mention that weakens promises is making and keeping promises carelessly. Consider the parable of the two sons that is found in Matthew 21. Let me read it to you. It's five verses. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. It's a wonderful story of repentance. But it's also a story of promise-making and promise-breaking. One writer put it this way. Though the yes brother was not a deceiver when he said yes, he nevertheless became a deceiver when he failed to keep his promise. In his very eagerness and promising, he became a deceiver. When you say yes or promise something, you can easily deceive yourself and others also as if you had already done what you'd promised. It's like you'd already done it. No, you haven't. You said you would, okay? Remember, it connects the present to the future. Just because you've said you're done, going to do something doesn't mean that you've done it. It is easy to think that by making a promise, you have at least done part of what you promised to do, as if the promise itself were something of value. I don't think I agree with the last part of that statement, but in fact, when you make a promise, you must then keep the promise. Don't make it carelessly, and don't keep it carelessly. If we're, not, if we're not thoughtful about the promises we make, if we ignore our own limitations or the cost involved, we are likely to become habitual promise breakers. It may be, in fact, that we make promises because we don't want to offend someone. That we, want, we make a promise because we don't want to say no. So it's easier to say yes and then not do it. we should make promises very thoughtfully and very carefully. Okay, so that's what weakens. I think a lot of this we already know. What strengthens promises? What strengthens the act of making a promise or keeping a promise? Let me suggest a few things. The first is counting the cost and honoring faithfulness. We need to understand that when you make a promise, it costs something. When you keep a promise, it costs something. And we should consider the cost before we make a promise. At this point, I would remind you of something we saw last week, that a promise is bi-directional. You have two parties involved. The one making the promise, the promisor, and the one to whom the promise is made, the promisee. Both parties are to recognize the limitations that are involved. Um, we are human. We can't do everything. And so if somebody promises something that's outrageous, to me, I would say, well, wait a minute. That, uh, 
I, I know, I, I'm hoping you mean well, but listen, that's simply not feasible. That's not possible. Please don't make that promise because it's a promise you can't keep. We need to recognize our limitations. Edith Schaefer said once in a book, it is not sinful to be finite. Okay? We are finite. That's not a sin. And we need to recognize that. So we should carefully weigh the cost. And I think in many ways we need to redefine how we see sacrifice. Um, let me say this. I, in my opinion, a community can ask too much of its members. And at the same time, members can offer too much to the community. When we make promises, there needs to be a careful, sober assessment of what is and what is not possible. Some people love to make grand promises, but they don't keep them. Then what, a value, what, what value is that? When I first became a pastor, uh, someone said, you need to go to this seminar. So I went to the seminar and it was on stewardship ostensibly how to get more money out of your parishioners. And we were told of different things that different pastors had tried. And one was, you should have a Sunday every so often, give your paycheck Sunday. That is, on that Sunday, you would give your paycheck to church. Well, the people who tried this said, well, what we found is that our offerings before and after are really low because people have to pay bills. So when you make this grand gesture, look, I'm giving you my paycheck. I think the church should never ask that and no one should promise that if they're not able to do so. There needs to be a sober assessment of what can and cannot be done. Second thing, we should recognize the blessing of being consistent. In our culture, I think we prize spontaneity over consistency. Consistency can seem boring day after day after day. People would rather be spontaneous, just do something on the spur of the moment. Well, if we're talking about a community, building and sustaining a sense of community, I think you'd have to go with consistency over spontaneity. Consider feeding your child. Supposing you said, well, you know what? We're not going to eat three meals a day. What we're going to do is just, whenever it hits us, we're going to have a great meal. Well, no. You need to have those meals on a regular basis, a sense of consistency. And as God's people in the congregation, we should prize consistency and faithfulness over spontaneity. Our culture is very wary of institutions, but they are also expressions of faithfulness over time. And they can provide a consistency that helps us to persevere, even when perseverance is inconvenient or not very satisfying. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask you, have you ever come to church on a Sunday when you didn't feel like it? When you didn't feel like this is something you wanted to do. And yet, you came anyway. There is something to be said for consistency, and we should prize it. 
and particularly when it comes to making and keeping promises. In the midst of a crisis that's filled with confusion, it can be helpful to be faithful to the task we know need to be done. Promises and structures inform our behavior. And we can live as God's people, Christian practices rooted in Christian theology. The third thing I think that helps promise making and keeping is patience. We need to allow for commitments to develop. We live in a culture that favors immediate results. But sometimes it takes time for promises to be fulfilled. Even if someone says, I will get this to you tomorrow, and they're not able to, there should be a sense of patience rather than, well, I'm sorry, you lied, you made a promise, you didn't keep your promise. There should be a sense of, okay, I will be patient, and by God's grace, you will fulfill the promise that you've made. That's hard to do because if you do that, it makes, us, it makes you sound weak or uncertain. It's like, wait a minute, I thought, I thought the agreement was tomorrow, and now you're saying maybe Tuesday or Wednesday? But are we thinking in terms of covenant or are we thinking in terms of contract? I think a covenant allows for patience that a contract does not. We need to recognize that giving things time does not guarantee that in the end they will work out. So in fact, if someone says, okay, next week I will do this, and they don't, you say, okay, I'll give you another week. You're patient. And then, not then, and then, okay, I'll give you another week, and and not then. Just because you're patient doesn't mean that the promise will in fact be fulfilled. Okay, But, it does provide us with an opportunity to think in terms of relationship rather than a contractual or transactional relationship. And it would do us well to remember that some promises take longer than our lifetime to be fulfilled. In Hebrews 11 we read, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. We should be patient. The story is told by the author of one Christian, who lived in one Christian community, in which a young woman who had caused a number of problems in this community, she was quite disruptive, she asked, you won't give up on me, will you? And I think in community we need to be patient and say, no, we will not give up on you. The fourth thing that helps with making and keeping promises is telling our story. What does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to be the church on Melrose? What are the promises that we make to each other, either explicit or implicit? What are the promises we make to this congregation? John Wesley, who started the Methodist Church, developed a covenant service in which the congregation would recite the following together. And now, beloved, 
Let us bind ourselves with willing bonds to our covenant God and take the yoke of Christ upon us. This taking of his yoke upon us means that we are heartily content that he appoint our work and place and that he alone be our reward. Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are suitable for our natural inclinations and temporal interests. Others are contrary to both. In some, we may please Christ and please ourselves. In others, we cannot please Christ except by denying ourselves. Yet the power to do all these things is assuredly given us in Christ who strengthens us. Therefore, let us make the covenant of God our own. Let us engage our heart to the Lord and resolve in his strength never to go back. Being prepared, let us now in sincere dependence on his grace and trusting in his promises, yield ourselves anew to him. As members of the congregation making promises to God, to each other, and to the congregation. What is our story? What does it mean to be a part of this congregation? The last thing that helps strengthen the making and keeping of promises is relying on God's grace and power. If we are not careful when I am done with this sermon and you take it together with last week's sermon, one might say, okay, that's it. I'll do it. I'm going to be a person who keeps his promises, her promises. I will be a person of the promise. As though by sheer grit, our own determination, we can do this. In truth, we should look to God. That it is only by his grace that we can keep our promises. And as we are the body of Christ, we are his people, we certainly need his strength. Again, Christine Pohl, who has written on this, said, It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, and promises of Jesus that we are able to keep our promises and commitments in the hard places. We are the people of the promise who worship a promising God. And if we as God's people in this place are to strengthen and to build our community, the church on Melrose, we need to keep these things in mind and put them into practice. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are one who has made wonderful promises and has kept them. And if we are to be like you as your children, we should be those who make and keep promises. But we should do so carefully, thoughtfully, patiently. We should look to you for strength. May we, as this community here, the Church on Melrose, gain a deeper sense of community. When we think of what it means to be a part of this congregation, what it means to be your people. But also in our daily lives, at work, at school, in our neighborhoods, may we put this into practice. May we be people who keep our word. 
and not out of some nostalgic sense for the past when a person's word was their bond, but because we are people of the promise, people of the covenant. As James wrote, may we be not hearers only, but doers of the word. May we in the days to come think through these things and by your grace, with your spirit, put them into practice. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.